MutinyRadio.fm. Hit the donate button, stream them live. Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere $5 every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So then all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? <laughs> it's a cash cock, honey. <laughs>
Time! 
our searchlights we can see in the dark we are rockets pointed up at the stars we are billions of beautiful hearts and you sold us down the river too far What about us? What about all the times you said you had the answers? What about us? What about all the broken happy ever afters? What about us? What about all the plans that ended in disaster? What about love? What about trust? What about problems that don't want to be solved we are children that need to be loved we were willing we came when you called but man you fool
Good morning, labor and lovers. This is the B. We're coming up on a flash dance. Let's call this a virtual flash dance. An Ottawa Greek festival.
Good morning, mutineers. Let's put that in the background. This was a uh, <coughs> flash mob put on by the Ottawa, Canada Greek community. And they basically just started out marching and dancing in the middle of the street. Members of the community came forward to dance, to help with the dancing. And they had a giant dancing event in the middle of the street. So let's listen to them. Breaking dishes. Cheering. So. What does that have to do with labor? Okay, la that has to do with labor. On uh, March 25th, last, the Greek Independence Day, a day when the Greek people, um, in southern Greece, area of Lamania, March 25th, March 28th, let's say that, see if that comes up. Anyway, this was a day that um, the Greek Republic um, was proclaimed. March 25th, Greek Independence Day. This is a... a Group of people in Nemanje in southern Greece, an area of Greece that was historically cut off from the rest of the of the world of the area, ruled by feudal lords, riffed by you know old fear and anger and uh, historic repression. Except the Ottoman Turks were wise in the sense that they allowed the Greeks to go on governing themselves. And they hold up in towers. There are towers all over Greece where the Ottoman troops hold up and lived. And when there was a problem, they would be called out. Somebody wasn't paying their tax to the uh, sultan. Um thought they would come down and right the wrong and go back up in their castle. So southern Greece, the area of Ariopoli, is where the republic was proclaimed. Anyway, that was our introduction, uh, the Zorba dance by the Greek community in Ottawa. And it's in these times, it's a wonderful thing to watch bunch of people getting together to celebrate who they are and uh, dance in the street. Before that, we had Pink. And Pink is asking, you know, what about us? You know, we were, we came when you called, we did what you said, and now what about us? What about our broken dreams? That's from her new album. And before that was Rihanna, 
Rihanna was singing American Oxygen. We are the new America. Perhaps calling people out. Come on, let's make the new America. Let's make a place where there's true community. Where community and cooperation rule the day instead of uh, divisiveness, instead of war and competition. Okay, Greek Independence Day. Zito elas. And tomorrow is Greek Easter. Um, Greek Easter. The Easter's all calculated differently. The Roman Easter is calculated based on the sun, I believe, and the Greek is on the phases of the moon. So this week, sometimes they come out the same. But this week, Greek Easter is one week later than uh, Roman Easter. So I want to play our... our radio labor segment first first of all let, let's introduce ourselves this is the B we are on listening to Mutiny Radio Mutiny Radio is a community arts center at 2781 21st Street and uh, come on down Mutiny always needs new voices Come on down and find your voice at Mutiny. If you're a programmer, a radio programmer, if you're a comedian, videographer, um, artist, need a, a space to display your work, come on down and talk to our station manager, Pam Benjamin, the architect of the whole Mutiny Radio project, uh, Pam Benjamin. So, what is labor's response to this pandemic? What, uh, what is labor doing hmm, with all this stuff? Well, here's one from Popular Resistance. Gig workers fight back. We don't want to deliver COVID-19 with your groceries. The economy is shut down considerably so that people can shelter in peace in place and slow the spread of COVID-19, but not all workers are able to do so. People who work in the food industry, not only producers, but grocery store workers, delivery people. This group of workers in, is in high demand. The personal shoppers who will buy what people order and deliver it to their homes. Ship shoppers who do this work have had pay cuts and are not being provided with what they need to protect themselves and their customers from contracting COVID-19. Speak with Robin Papp. Hope I'm pronouncing that right. A gig worker is helping to lead the fight back to demand that ship shoppers are protected and compensated for the hazardous work they do. 
You're listening to Clearing the Fog, speaking truth to expose the forces of greed with Margaret Flowers and Kevin Zeese. And Clearing the Fog is a project of popularresistance.org. You can subscribe to us on Apple, SoundCloud, MixCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play. You can also find us at popularresistance.org. And while you're there, check out our store. You'll find t-shirts, bumper stickers, tote bags, and water bottles. So this week we interviewed Robin Pape. She is a gig worker in central New York. She works for a company called Shipped Shoppers. And that's a company that basically goes to the store, shops for people, and then delivers it to people's homes. It's a really great service for especially the coronavirus. She makes an excellent point that it's much better to have fewer people in the stores delivering food to a lot of people than a lot of people going to the stores. Unfortunately, gig workers are not being treated very well right now and shipped shoppers are fighting back. So stay tuned for that interview so you can find out more about that. We recorded the interview on Friday, April 10th, which was actually a day where they were calling for a boycott of shipped shoppers to support their demands. But before we get to that interview, there's a lot in the news. Let's start out with some information that was released about Julian Assange this past week. His partner and the mother of their two children spoke out. Julian Assange, uh, one of his lawyers who was, became part of the legal team in 2011, they met almost every day uh, as a part of his legal defense. So by 2015, they became personally involved, became partners, and produced two, ch- two children. She talks about how um, having a family was an effort to establish some normalcy in Julian's life at a time when the establishment is trying to do everything to tear him down. But what was interesting is that they had previously kept her identity and the, and the fact that there were two children secret because of threats. And um, Judge Barritzer, who's been a terrible judge in the Assange case, said that that privacy was not necessary and was going to release her name. So she decided that she wanted to release her name first and explain more about her relationship with Julian Assange. So WikiLeaks produced a video of her describing uh, the evolution of their relationship and why she was going public. And that... Did it while he's the nominee. No, well, she actually been trying for a year right. to get the story out. Definitely. The United States government called the Center for Disease Control. Alex Azar knew about it. The National Security Council knew. Who to give a contract to? Well, the, the Congress has. Okay, I wanted to get the part where they interview the uh, the worker, but we'll just read it out. Speak of Robin Pape is is who's the gig worker in. Central New York, where she works for a company called Smart Shoppers. And then we got into Julian Assange. Well, okay. Radio Labor. As soon as that will come up. This one about... This is Solidarity News on Radio Labour. 
This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, April 17th, 2020. I'm Mark Boulanger. In a report this week, the plight of retail food workers during the pandemic, successfully fighting child labor in Zimbabwe, the Labor Start report about union events and, poetically speaking, They took my dignity, my identity, my money, but not my accent. This is Radio Labor. As governments put into place initiatives to confront the COVID-19 pandemic, they are leaving open two sectors, healthcare, obviously, and the provision of food. To find out what is happening to the workers in the food retail operations, I talked to Christy Hoffman. Ms. Hoffman is the General Secretary of Uni Global Union. Uni represents more than 20 million workers in 150 countries. I asked Ms. Hoffman about her organization's members in the food retail sector. Well, first of all, let me say, Mark, thank you for inviting me to join you today. And also thank you for continuing this very important broadcast during this incredibly difficult and even catastrophic time for the world's workers. The commerce sector is UNI's largest sector. We represent 4 million workers across the world. Majority of them are in food retail, which has historically had the strongest presence of unions in the retail sector. But I also add that in, in addition to these workers, we also campaign to organize and raise the standards for the non-union workers across the retail sector in both e-commerce and the brick-and-mortar stores. And so we consider ourselves the voice for all commerce workers. In a response to the COVID-19 pandemic, Uni has signed a declaration of action with two large corporations, Auchan and Carrefour. Why was this done? Let me first point out that two more employers have now agreed to sign the agreement, El Corte Inglés, a Spanish retailer, and Casino, also a French retailer. And we hope that many more food retailers will sign. And I think the reason we did this is because we want to make the stores as safe as possible for these very essential workers. When the pandemic began, it was clear that food retail workers, the cashiers and others in the stores, are essential workers. We all have to eat. We have, have to have access to food. And yet these workers are putting themselves in a very dangerous position being exposed to the public all the time, working longer hours than, than usual in many cases. We know from reports that in the United States there are at least 41 grocery store workers who have died. Um, that's only the, those reported, and we believe there are many more in the U.S., and in, we know of cases in Italy and Spain and in France as well. So this is a, a serious kind of exposure. These workers tend to be younger than those who are normally considered to be most at risk. And we've, we've, we're seeing many deaths. So we, we know that the workers are being heralded across the media, the unsung heroes, that, you know, we never realize how brave, you know, what, how much bravery it took to be working in a grocery store. But this kind of recognition is really, it's great, but it's not enough. We have to do everything that we can do to protect the workers, to make sure their work site is safe, and also to treat them as heroes long after the end of the COVID-19 and through improved status, pay, and conditions. So we decided to bring together some of the leading food retailers. And again, I stress we want this to be a big initiative with more retailers on board so that we can collaborate on best practices, so that we can 
get these practices moving quickly and uniformly across the sector, including in those areas where there aren't unions. And that's why we launched the initiative. What is in the declaration that you are negotiating with these large food retail companies? The main point of the declaration is an agreement to come together to map out a coordinated response. We've heard a lot of this steps that should be taken across the media, the sort of nonstop media about distancing, about spacing, about too many people, overcrowding in the stores, cleanliness, hand washing, face masks, the whole list of steps that need to be taken to ensure the maximum level of safety for food retail workers. And when I say maximum level, that doesn't mean perfect. I want to stress that there is still some danger for workers. But our ambition was to bring together the retailers who have been doing more than others and who have been doing their best to collaborate on all the practices and try to to support those areas where there aren't unions, uh, where the virus has not yet fully expanded so that we can do our absolute best to develop uniform practices and best practices. I would also stress that we see a lot of good policies out there, but, you know, the devil is in the details when it comes to the devil's in the, like, who is going to actually make it happen on the ground? So we want to put in place some mechanisms to make sure that these steps are actually being taken. In Zimbabwe, the teacher unions have been implementing successful programs against child labor. A video produced by the Global Union Education International describes how the unions came together to dramatically reduce child labor in the country. The unions are the Progressive Trade Union of Zimbabwe, the PTUZ, and ZIMTA, the Zimbabwe Teachers Association. Raymond Majungwe, the general secretary of the PTUZ, is interviewed in the video. He refers to the child labor conventions of the International Labor Organization. Child labor is a global problem that requires a global solution. The Progressive Teachers Union of Zimbabwe and the Zimbabwe Teachers Association started the Stop Child Labor program in 2015 in the Chipinga District, Ward 8, which exhibited high cases of child labor and abuse. I think uh, the, the concept uh, basically was a new one to the union, but we felt we had uh, a national responsibility to respond to the core because as a union, we were looking at various other points that needed interventions of the teaching profession. And first and foremost, we're looking at capacitating our own teachers in the human rights aspects, our female teachers, protecting and defending the rights of women, protecting the rights of children. And within that particular avenue, it became important that child labor became a concept that we decided to run with. And in our interaction with many other players, for instance, if we're going to look at uh, some of the people who come to mind were the people in, in the Netherlands, where we actually went for the first trip to discuss about the concept of child labor. It was from there that we discovered that the union, as a teacher organization, had a national responsibility and an international obligation to stand up and defend the rights of children. And secondly, it also became clear that uh, fighting child labor would ultimately benefit the societies, the school setup, as well as the country as a whole. Because contrary to what people thought, 
that uh, children working on farms, on mines, on estates was good for the children. We actually saw that the negative impact of allowing these kids in these particular hazardous setups ultimately had a cumulative destructive impact on the future of the children as well as impacting negatively on the parents and other workers who obviously would be sidelined and should change as they would then decide to bring in the children and pay them less and ultimately abuse and expose them to many other vagaries of uh, uh, dangers associated with their health as well as their upbringing and well-being. So the union, the Progressive Teachers Union of Zimbabwe, decided to come in because we then saw that even in the concept of the international best practice, it was very correct that we looked at the critical conventions like Convention 138 as well as Convention 182. Ultimately, both these looking at uh, issues around uh, child labor, at, at various levels in terms of the age, age groups as well as what happens when some of these kids ultimately come in and basically the international position where we say at a particular time kids under the age of 15 uh, should not be exposed to many other things. Here with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. This is the COVID good news edition of our weekly report. Why good news? Because just a quick glance at our special COVID and unions news page reveals that though the context is terrible, a lot of very good things are starting to happen. So for this report, we have nothing but good news. The big good news last week was from Australia, where the Australian Council of Trade Unions managed to gain emergency funding for hundreds of thousands of casual and gig workers who had previously been excluded. For all of you lockdown union officials out there, we had the work done by the Trade Union Congress of Great Britain's Digital Lab to bring us advice on how to do union work from home, including a broad survey of what United Kingdom unions are doing and a detailed look at how one major union there has moved online for however long this crisis lasts and perhaps beyond. Around the world, workers were showing their appreciation for those at work performing essential functions that we all depend on. We carried stories complete with video from working class areas of Brazilian and American and British and French and Spanish cities where tens of thousands of people in working class areas go under their balconies to salute healthcare and other essential workers. While in Canada, the Postal Workers Union organizes weekly parades of their trucks to honor healthcare workers. There was other good news from Canada. The largest credit union in that country and one with a long progressive history has responded to the Canadian Labour Congress's call for a moratorium on credit card interest by eliminating interest charges on all of its credit cards for the duration. Online distractions of both the educational and social varieties are becoming more and more common. Webinars on union topics or organized by unions but covering other areas of interest to workers were too numerous to list last week. Like much of the topical online education and discussions that unions are organizing for workers, the conference features a session on how to build union power in the context of the COVID crisis.
Around the world, the number of protests by healthcare workers demanding access to personal protective equipment appears to have dropped drastically this week, possibly and hopefully because the promised supplies of masks and other equipment is catching up to the demand. One last bit of COVID good news this week. It's becoming very clear that the global labor movement has no intention of a return to business as usual when the lockdown ends. Unions have learned a great deal in the early stages of the crisis about what social benefits and healthcare systems were properly funded and worked as they were intended and which were not and didn't. Around the globe, workers and their unions are expecting and planning for something better after the crisis is over and are already pushing back against emergency programs that benefit corporations and not workers. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start reporting for Radio Labor. Now here's Manuela Astudillo with I Have an Accent. Is it my accent? Because my hazel eyes and white thick thighs don't tell the story that my appearance hides? Is it my accent? Or is it the dust on my face? What dust, you ask? The one that seeped through my skin when I tried to rush in, all tight in the back of an illegal coyote car for 40 days with no water, no food, no air, and no way out. And just when I thought I had gotten somewhere, yes, I tell you somewhere because as a fact, I was in the middle of nowhere. I stepped out of that dark, dirty hole, and they took advantage. They took it all. They took my dignity, my identity, my money, but not my accent. And with this accent, I travel a journey from nowhere to somewhere to find the future that was stolen from my ancestors by the government of my new country. And even though that in this country, some of you still laugh at me because instead of saying party, I end up saying patty, I have an accent and I recognize it. But here my people don't want their accents. They hide their culture and erase their past. They change their color to blind their eyes. But I have an accent. And even though that I can change my long curly brown hair to blonde and change the color of my eyes to green, blue, brown, pink, or red, I don't. No, I won't. And so I'll fight to protect the roots of my race through night and through day because I have an accent. I Have an Accent was produced by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, the UFCW. Once I was seven years old. And that's it. International labor news you can use. You can find our features and daily on our website at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about caring for each other through global solidarity.
Hey, wow, that was from uh, <coughs> Happy Learning English, a group of young people who uh, sing in order to teach English to kids. And this one is called Your Most Useful Instrument, Human Rights. Good lesson for our young people. Good lesson. Teach them. Before that, Bob Dylan, Maggie's Farm No More, in concert, uh, probably about 1980 or so, uh, obviously enjoying himself, being a rock star, rolling his eyes. And before that, um, I Have an Accent, oh, you took everything away from me, but you didn't take my part of uh, Radio Raven. So let's talk a little bit about the situation we're all in. 
to quote Jesse Jackson, we didn't all come over on the same boat, but we're all in the same boat now. What is, what is the great fear that's driving uh, Mr. Trump and his minions and the people who, by extension, uh, support the social system as a way to get rich? So, number one, we're not producing profits now as working people. And no fault of our own. It's not like we went on strike or anything. Uh, although that is in the offing. That might be something that happens. So in a capitalist society, it works. People go to work, produce. The bosses take the profit. Then the people consume what they made or what other workers made. So if you take away that work which produces the wealth that allows people to be billionaires, multi-billionaires, that wealth is produced by people's work. When you take that away, not only do you take away their work, but you take away their power to consume. The last big bull market was was based on consumption by people buying things by people spending consumer spending now when those things are gone you can't pass you can't take the labor and process it and put it out the other side as wealth can't do it. So the, the big deal, the big problem now for Mr. Trump and his minions and the people who believe in capitalism is how to get people back to work. So first of all, we're, they're even willing to give you all kinds of money to stay out and not work, but be ready to come back to work. The real fear is that they're not going to reopen in time. And they're not going to be able to put people back to work. And that means the R word. That means revolution. When a social system can't provide outlets for its, the energies of its workers, then it fails workers collect out on the street corner or amongst each other and they get more and more desperate because this is what they've been told okay you work you survive you don't have a job well too bad so those this is the great fear now it's not about those demonstrations in in Minnesota and uh, Michigan, South Dakota, those places. It's about that's kind of people acting like lemmings, okay? Lemmings in a big crowd rushing toward their own doom. 
causing their own doom by going out in those those rallies that's just spreading the disease. But mm, at any rate, that's the great fear now. And you get people, you know, out of work, like in the 1929, 1930s, 31, people were out of work. Not because they wanted to be, but because there wasn't any work. Capitalism was not providing outlets, ways for them to survive. So now capitalism has to provide ways for people to survive. Independent of their job situation. So that's why there's the big push to reopen America. Who cares, Dr. Oz says. Reopen the schools, we'll lose 2 or 3%. That's all. <coughs> That's livable, huh? And the other guy, Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil says, well, we, we lose people to auto accidents all the time. We don't close down for that. Well, those are auto accidents are not contagious. Hello? Hello? At any rate, what we need to do to need to do at this time, this is a moment of consciousness for us. All of a sudden, all the sham is gone. People realize, hey, wait a minute, this is happening all over the world to people, just like them. People who work for a living in order to survive. If we can gain that consciousness, if we can all of a sudden experience that kind of togetherness, to look around us, this can be a, a huge moment in history. Okay, let's do the labor beat. Okay, so first off on the labor beat. Stories from here and there about working people. This is a quote from uh, Elizabeth Warren. There is nobody in this country who got rich on his own. Nobody. You moved your goods to market on the roads the rest of us paid for. You hired workers the rest of us paid to educate. You were safe in your factory because of police forces and fire forces 
that the rest of us paid for. You didn't have to come to, to worry that marauding bands would come and seize everything at your factory and hire someone to protect against this because of the work the rest of us did. Now look, you built a factory and turn it into something terrific or a great idea. God bless. Keep a big hunk of it. Part of the underlying social contract is you take a hunk of that and pay forward for the next kid who comes along. Beautiful quote from Elizabeth Warren. Again, look around you. People didn't make it on their own. One of the myths of capitalism is that there are people who start with nothing and through only their own hard work and genius or whatever, they prosper. Well, that's ridiculous. Here's some examples of self-made millionaires. First of all is Mr. Trump. Mr. Trump had the gall to come and say that, uh, oh yeah, well, when I started out, I got a small loan of a million dollars from my father. Whoa. And we all stood around and said, well, hey, give me a million dollars. See what I can do with it. Bill Gates, for example, Bill Gates' mother was close to members of the board of IBM and used her influence to get them to hire her son's fledgling company, Microsoft, when it was only a tiny startup. Jeff Bezos started Amazon with $300,000 from his parents. $300,000 and more from his friends pitched in. Warren Buffett, the great sage investor who, who even admits to the fact that he pays less taxes than his secretary. Buffett is the son of a congressman who owns an investment company. And Elon Musk, his father owned Emerald Mine in apartheid South Africa. That's where his money came from. One way or another, you look around, the money came from people's work. Here's a call for a mass strike on May 1st, May Day. Focus of this new... Uh, pro-worker movement. We want to come out of this with certain things, right? We want to come out of this with good health care. We want to come out of this with more worker rights. Now that we look around, around and we realize how mighty we are, how much the whole system depends on us. If we don't consume, countries go broke. The companies go broke. Companies don't go broke. If companies go broke, we have no work. So we're tied. Got to figure out how to do this. How to subsist, maybe on government money. New York tenant leaders are 
declining a massive wave of rent strikes across the state. The latest ex escalation in a campaign to force action from Governor Andrew Cuomo as he continues to risk calls to lift rent obligations by those financially impacted by the coronavirus public health crisis. Two weeks before next month's rent deadline, the Upstate Downstate Housing Alliance launched a pledge on Thursday urging New York tenants to collectively withhold their rent on May 1st, regardless of whether they can pay. The number of New York residents who've applied for unemployment in recent weeks skyrocketed past 1 million. Millions of people can't pay rent, and we're trying to turn that into a moment of collective non-compliance. See how that turns out, May 1st. Okay, let's see, tenant advocate. What good is melody? What good is music if it ain't possessing something sweet? Now it ain't the melody and it ain't the music. There's something else that makes this tune complete. Yes, it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. If it's sweet or hot Just give that rhythm Everything you got Yes Don't mean a thing If it ain't got that swing It don't mean a thing Don't mean a thing If you ain't got that swing, boy I said, don't mean a thing, and all you got to do is sing like la 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 da 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 la 
Okay, that was Louis Armstrong. It don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. And in the meantime, Angeli Yvonne Davis on the need for a third party. Angela Davis's work uh, centers around issues of gender, race, class, and prisons. It has influenced critical thought and social movements across several generations. She's a leading advocate for prison abolition, a position informed by her own experience as a fugitive on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list more than 40 years ago. In 1944, Davis was born in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, the city would become known as Bombingham as a result of so many Ku Klux Klan bombings. In 1963, the Klan blew up the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, killing four girls and injuring 22 others. I spoke to Angela Davis this month, just after Donald Trump initially waffled over his refusal to condemn an endorsement by David Duke, the prominent white supremacist and former Ku Klux Klan leader. Well, it didn't really surprise me. Um, uh, we've seen the development of um, a, a kind of a fascist appeal over the time that uh, Donald Trump has been um, attempting to achieve the Republican nomination. But I can say that um, it would have been extremely difficult to imagine someone like this uh, having a legitimate claim to the Republican uh, nomination, um, even at the time that when we thought that um, it was, it was um, totally amazing that George W. Bush might be eventually become the president of, of the U.S. Uh, but I think this is an indication of the extent to which uh, conservatives and the Republican Party have been uh, creating this, um, this base uh, that uh, 
can indeed serve as uh, support for someone like Donald Trump. And what the Ku Klux Klan means, it's hard to ask that question because um, you think everybody knows, but uh, I think it's very important to talk about their historical significance and the violence that they wrought. And of course, we're still today witnessing the legacy of the Ku Klux Klan, um, which isn't to say that the Ku Klux Klan has been put to rest. Uh, uh, that organization still still exists. But the Ku Klux Klan, of course, um, evokes the racist, terrorist, violent history of um, associated uh, with the era following slavery up to the present. Uh, it doesn't seem to me to be a question whether one would disavow the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, but of course, uh, the extent to which Donald Trump um, was beating around the bush, uh, seemingly in an effort not to alienate those who might support the Klan today, uh, is, um, is um, an indication that he is— um, And it was helping. right before uh, Super Tuesday, which had a number of Southern states. And when he came out in the debate um, uh, to say he was disavowing, that was after Super Tuesday. And it's interesting, of course, that he won precisely those states below the Mason-Dixon line that historically have been associated uh, with that kind of uh, violent uh, racism. So let's go from the Republicans to the Democrats. During a recent private Hillary Clinton fundraiser in Charleston, South Carolina, right before the South Carolina primary, a Black Lives Matter activist named Ashley Williams held up a banner reading, quote, we have to bring them to heal, which was a reference to controversial statements Hillary Clinton made in 1996 about some youth whom she called, quote, super predators. Williams then confronted Clinton, saying, quote, I am not a super predator. I'm not a super predator, Hillary Clinton. Okay, fine, we'll talk about it. Do you apologize to black people for mass incarceration? Well, can I talk? So that was Hillary Clinton saying you were the first person to ask me about this, uh, speaking to Black Lives Matter activist Ashley Williams, who confronted Clinton at a private fundraiser. So Ashley was then escorted away. Williams says a friend contributed $500 so she could attend the private event. The protest was in response to these controversial comments Hillary Clinton made while speaking at Keene College in New Hampshire in 1996. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heal. That's what she said in 1996. Uh, on Super Tuesdays, Hillary Clinton was confronted by a young Somali-American woman during a campaign stop in a coffee shop in Minneapolis who asked Clinton about her super predator comments. The quiet back and forth ended with Clinton growing frustrated and telling the young woman, quote, well, why don't you go run for something then? 
Angela Davis, if you could respond, there's so many different things. I think it's really wonderful that Black Lives Matter activists are participating in this electoral period in this way, um, forcing candidates to speak on issues about which they might not um, um, speak. And of course, Hillary Clinton should have said, well, I was wrong to use the term super predators. I, what I know now, I didn't necessarily know. Then there are many ways in which she could have disavowed it. And we know, of course, uh, that the Clinton administration was responsible, at least in part, in large part, for the buildup of what is now called uh, mass incarceration with the passage of the 1994 um, uh, crime bill. Uh, uh, it seems to me that if she's interested in the votes of um, not only African Americans and people of color, but of all people who are uh, progressive and attempting to speak out against uh, uh, the racism of over-incarceration, she would simply say, I was wrong then. Um, that super predator is a racially coded term. Uh, uh, it's so interesting that she is she tends to, she tends to um, rely on a kind of universalism that prevents her from acknowledging the extent to which racism is so much a force and an influence in this country. And yet, um, in primary after caucus after primary, when there's a large African-American population, uh, she wins that vote over Bernie Sanders. Well, of course, um, if we look at um, the historical situation, we know that uh, her husband, Bill Clinton, was extremely popular in uh, black communities all over the country, and one of the most popular presidents in, the, in before Obama, perhaps the most popular president in the history of, of the country, uh, except perhaps Abraham Lincoln. What did Toni uh, Morrison call him our first black president? Well, but she did, did not exactly say that. Uh, um, what she was uh, referring to was the fact that he uh, did acknowledge black culture in ways that other presidents uh, had not. Uh, and and in, in a sense, you can say that there was a conscious appeal to uh, black communities in ways that I think that her, his wife, Hillary Clinton, is, is not capable of uh, of developing. Okay, well, a little historical perspective there. Angela Davis talking about events in 2016, all of which, of course, apply to us now. Uh, Angela Davis, still around, uh, a native of North Carolina. play one of our labor songs. We had Bob Dylan a minute ago. All right. Let's go to our Facebook. This is where we find bits and pieces all during the week that have to do with labor. And we read 
we just went about the employees, postal workers union, among the most prominent victims of the coronavirus financial crisis is the U.S. Postal Service. The Trump administration, which, like much of the GOP, has long advocated for cutbacks and privatization of the Postal Service. They actively prevented the U.S. Postal Service from being bailed out in the CARES Act, even as Donald Trump has made a show of publicly thanking FedEx and UPS for their work. Not very subtle. Fifty years ago last month, U.S. postal workers staged an unprecedented and historic eight-day strike, backing down the Nixon administration and winning the right to collective bargaining. A half century later, Mark Diamondstein, leader of the 20,000-member strong, 200,000-member strong American Postal Workers Union, says that the administration is using today's crisis as an opportunity to destroy the Postal Service as a public entity once and for all. In these times spoke to Diamondstein about the existential peril facing postal workers and what they plan to do about it. Okay, so he, he goes on. The uh, pandemic is having a huge effect on mail. Post office is not taxpayer funded where it normally runs on revenue. 40 to 50% of that dries up, which is what it looks like is happening in a very quick and precipitous way. And that money has to be made up. So the Postal Board of Governors is asking for $25 billion for relief and another $25 billion for modernization, which gives them money to modernize the fleet a relief for every single person in the country, not a relief for a private entity. Secretary of Trevor Mnuchin represented the, the administration in, in stopping the funding. The White House openly called for an opportunity to sell off the post office to private corporations in June of 2018. Their agenda is to enrich a few of their private sector friends at the expense of the people of our community. Now we have a massive unemployment rate that's never been seen, and there are 600,000 good living wage jobs in the post office. That they would dare come after these jobs makes it much more shameful. Sometimes between July and September, he says, the post office will likely run out of money. And when they run out of money, their operations will cease. We had bipartisan support in the House and Senate. 
in a Wall Street Goldman Sachs Secretary of the Treasury said to both parties, you will not have an incentive package that is that the post office is in. Even though it gave $500 billion to the private sector. Okay. I want to mention one more thing he says, and this is how he connects it up to the crisis of democracy. The whole question of whether the ballot is going to be protected. Here you have a situation where people are unable to come and vote physically. Poll workers are unable to come and be safe in their civic duties. Poll by mail is safe. There's a paper trail. It's working in states that do it by law. It's working in states that do it voluntarily. It increases participation. And look, there are those in this country who would rather not have people coming to the ballot box. Public post office is the civic life of this country. Any rate, okay. So he says that postal service could be dead in three months if Congress doesn't do anything. But if you come to work and all of a sudden the boss says, all union members are hereby fired. That's exactly what happened in Southeast Asia where some employers see an opportunity to attack unions to increase their profits. On March 28th, the Beyond Mode garment factory in Yangon, Myanmar, permanently fired all 520 union members working in the factory and withheld March wages, citing a decrease in orders due to COVID-19. But the Korea-based owners kept all 700 workers who are not members of the union. And the factory continues to operate. Mayan Mode Union is one of the strongest in the company's garment industry with a history of militant strikes to improve wages and conditions. A clear message, says the president of the union. They want to get rid of our union, get rid of our voices, get rid of our requirement to treat us like human beings. Once and for all, they see the coronavirus as an opportunity to get away with it. After five days of protest, owners finally agreed to negotiate April 2nd, okay, but have refused to reinstate the hired workers. All union members are hereby fired. Oh, boy. Okay. What's needed now is love, to show love between working people. The love supreme by the great John Coltrane with Koi Tyner on piano. <laughs> ¶¶ 
Doctors just told you it's all in your head. I got news for you. It's actually all in your gut. Cardiothoracic surgeon Stephen Gundry says he solved the weight loss mystery.
That was <clears throat> a tip of the hat to the world's greatest singer, whose birthday was last week. I say on the 11th. The great Al Green singing uh, Roy Orbison. Song that Orbison sang, Made of the Earth. Pretty Woman. And then before that, John Coltrane with his Love Supreme Part 1, 1965, with McCoy Tyner on the piano. All we can say it about Coltrane is he stretched the boundaries of what people did with their instruments. And in many quarters, there's no higher praise than that. All right, Labor and Love Radio, about time for us to get out of here and leave the mic to Scott Walker, Scott O. Walker from Flat Black Cloud. And <coughs> please remember that if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. Please remember that if you don't have a seat, if you didn't have a seat at the negotiating table, you're gone. You're history. You're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into the heart, your heart who's not a friend of labor. It really helps in times like this when there are people who are in that kind of harmony. Remember what Jesse Jackson said? 
We didn't all come over on the same boat, but we're all in the same boat now. Hear, hear. Remember, of course they don't want you to form a union. Of course they don't want you to... Because your labor makes them rich. Bye-bye, everybody. Everybody from six to eight. Let's run this up a little. Festival in 2011 in Ottawa. Goodbye and good work, everybody. Please stay safe and help each other out.
it is 2 p.m. on Friday, uh, March 7th. We're starting at a Unity Radio Comedy Festival. And March, March 6th. Oh, March 6th. All right. Uh, I don't know which day is it today. <laughs> That's a good sign. <laughs> um, and so this podcast is called Meet the Parents. Um, hello. Yeah, so we have some special guests in the house. I am your host, Bernice Yeah from Seattle. And why not we start from my right and then Rolf first and then do a round of introduction. Yeah, hi, I'm Rolf Kumar. Big fan of Mutiny Radio. Glad to be here with you guys all. Hi, I'm Laurie Tiki. I live in South Bay, but I'm originally from Amsterdam, the Netherlands, and I have some Swiss and some Canadian. Pam, do you want to go before me? I, I, I. <laughs> Runs up Unity Radio. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, that's everybody yeah, knows Pam already. Unity yeah. Radio Comedy Festival. <laughs> yeah. uh, meet the parents. Meet the parents. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have uh, three. We have like two more guests might drop in when yeah, so they will come in. Uh, we will introduce them as they come in. Uh, my name is Bernice Yeah. Um, I live in Seattle and um, I was born and raised in China. Um, I came here when I was 21. Um, so the uh, reason why I want to do this podcast is because uh, this uh, earlier, well, no, earlier last year, I brought my uh, boyfriend to meet my parents. Um, he is an American. He has never been to China, so it's his first time. Um, and he doesn't speak Chinese other than knowing Ni Hao, right? <laughs> and so uh, there are just all kinds of like silly things that happen on the trip. So I just want to kind of stress through my story. And then like we got all the comments, that, hey, they have a lot of meeting the parents fun moments too. So I guess I started, but I want to kind of ask everybody about uh, what type of meet the parents you want to talk about today. Anyone who can jump in, just yeah, go, yeah. This is Rolf. I love meeting parents. <laughs> <laughs> How I've many parents have you met I've so far? Well, I'm not married, but I've, I've met a few of them. And uh, they look forward to it. And uh, a lot of people say they got a little teary because uh, sometimes they like me more than their own kids. They don't love me. I think that's the thing. They you know will always love their kids more than their own little kids. Yeah. They just don't like me. Oh, so. yeah, 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 yeah. I love my parents. I don't really like them. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's an interesting puzzle to put together. Uh, so uh, I'm, uh, I don't want to talk about meeting other people's parents. I want to talk about meeting my parents. I have a ton of them. My father had a somewhat tumultuous marriage record, and so there's a lot of people to meet. And then um, my father's uh, third wife's ex-husband married my father's second wife, and so we had lots of that were both kind of step-siblings in lots of different ways. Uh, and that's always been super interesting to bring 